to Luke, Gospel of Luke, chapter 3. We'll begin reading this morning in verse number 18. Luke chapter 3, verse 18. Last week we took just a, a brief break from our Luke series, but today we continue on. And I'd like to speak to you this morning on this topic, the defining moment of baptism. We'll be studying this morning the baptism of the Lord Jesus Christ and talk about how it defined His ministry. Verse 18, the Bible says, And many other things in His exhortation preached He unto the people. That's John the Baptist. But Herod the Tetrarch, being reproved by him for Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, and for all the evils which Herod had done, added yet this above all, that he shut up John in prison. Now, if you would be gracious with me here, I, these verses need to be addressed, and they will be, but in Luke chapter 9, we actually revisit the idea of Herod and John. So this morning, I'm going to move past these verses into the baptism of Christ. In verse 21, now when all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also being baptized and praying, the heaven was opened, and the Holy Ghost descended in a bodily shape like a dove upon him. And a voice came from heaven which said, Thou art my beloved Son, in thee I am well pleased. And with that, might I ask you to bow your heads with me and let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning, the wonderful singing. Lord, it's already stirred our hearts. We pray now that the Spirit of God would come down and be not just in us, but upon us. Lord, we desire to learn from this passage some things that might help us throughout this week, throughout the rest of our lives. And above all, we want to turn our eyes upon Jesus. We love getting to think about Him and talk about Him. Might He have the preeminence in everything we do today. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Baptism for anybody is a defining moment. It should be. It is not the defining moment in your life, but it should be a defining moment for sure. Baptism, as we read it in the New Testament, is a solemn proclamation. You're making a statement to everybody that is attending that baptism. You are showing them outwardly what has happened to you inwardly. In the case of John the Baptist, the people had repented. There was genuine repentance. They had brought forth fruit that would prove that they had repented. And therefore, they got into the water to show everybody, we are not ashamed of the decision we have made to follow God. And John backed that up by baptizing them to say, your sins indeed have been forgiven, not by the water. The water doesn't wash away your sins. In the case of John the Baptist, bear in mind, Jesus hadn't died yet. So these people, they were forgiven because they repented and said, God, we want to live life your way, not our way. Now our case, and let me speak personally, my case is going to be different because we live on the other side of the cross. When I got baptized, one of the reasons I did that, yes, was to show everybody in the church that day I desire to follow God for the rest of my life. Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. I accept all of God, and I want to serve God with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength. I was also drawing a picture. When you get into the water of baptism, which also speaks to the proper mode of baptism, mind you, 
we stand you in the water and we say crucified, buried, risen with him. Water baptism draws a picture. You see, when I accepted Christ as my Savior, the Holy Spirit baptized me into Christ. He joined me to the Lord. And now that I've been joined to the Lord, I'm a part of his death, his burial, and his resurrection. So we get into the water to show people that inside I've been joined to the Lord. And I want to show you what Jesus has done for me on the inside. He has made me a part of his death, burial, and resurrection. Now everybody, here's what he did. And we put you in the water, under the water, burial, back up now to walk in newness of life. Mind you, the water did not save me. The water was an act of obedience. It was an act of proclamation to say I'm not ashamed of my Savior and what he did for me. Now in the case of of Jesus, his baptism is extremely unique. I don't know about the story for your baptism. Mine was very special. My wife and I, we got saved right about the same time. She actually is a little older than me in the Lord. I don't know if many of you are aware of that. She's, she is my spiritual elder. <laughs> she got saved two months before I did. But we got baptized on the same day. And I'll never forget the day that her and I were baptized. Immediately when we both were out of the water and standing behind, you know, in the room where you would get uh, redressed and all of that, we were together. And she fell into my arms and gave me the biggest hug and broke down in some tears. It was a pivotal moment for us. We had accepted Christ, we knew we were saved, but now we have just, before the entire church said, for the rest of our lives, this is the path we want to walk. It was a special moment for us. As special as it was, I promise you, the heavens did not open. (laughs) The Father from heaven did not speak and say anything directly to us. The Holy Spirit did not come down in the form of a dove. There was something extremely unique and special, obviously, about the baptism of of Jesus Christ. This, however, is a pivotal moment for him. For the first 30 years of his life, he has been about his father's business, was he not? Even at the age of 12, young people, listen here, young people, even at the age of 12, he was busy about his father's business. You don't have to wait until you're a full Vosinist so that you can serve God. You can start right now as a young person. That'd be best. That'd be best. Jesus had been about the Father's business, but now his hour had come. It's time for him to leave behind the secular job of carpentry. And now it's time to go full-time, full-time into the ministry. It's time for him to begin teaching, preaching, working miracles, and manifesting himself to the world, telling them that I've come to save you from your sins and bring you back to God. And in order for that pivot to happen, God chose baptism to make that pivotal moment known to everybody. His baptism defined three things about him. And I want to point out those three things. Can I ask you to look at verse number 21? It says, now when all the people were baptized. Now, I want to paint that picture in your mind. I want you to think of John the Baptist All right, now get the picture right. Long, scraggly beard with honey dripping down and half a locust, you know, from his breakfast stuck in it and leather and gray. You got the right picture? (laughs) I mean, there's John down there. Who else wants to get baptized? All right, he's in the River Jordan. And he's kaploosh, kaploosh, one after another. They're getting baptized. And there's a queue. We in South Africa are used to waiting in queues, right? (laughs) 
So the people are standing in line, they're being baptized, and it says when all the people were baptized, we don't know how many, but there was a long line that day. Please do not think that all the people in Israel had gotten baptized. It was just all the people that were there that day. Jesus waited in line. I just want to point that out to you. Man, I didn't realize that would be such a point. Jesus waited patiently in line. I, I, I don't know. I just don't see well. I know Jesus didn't stand and complain about that. Anyway, I, I'm going to move on. I, I didn't have that in my notes. It didn't even dawn on me that that would be a preaching point. But anyway, he waited in line. I will say that. He did not tap the shoulder of the guy in front of him and say, excuse me, sir, I'm the Son of God, the Messiah. I've come to be the Savior of the world. Uh, could, you maybe, could you maybe move aside and let me skip the line? You know Jesus could have just raised a hand and parted the Red Sea of that queue, right? <laughs> the people just would have, and Jesus walked. He didn't. Because point number one, if you want to jot it down, those of you that have the bulletin, there's space in, in the bulletin to make notes. Number one, Jesus came and got baptized to demonstrate that he is a friend for sinners. This was an act of humility. He is standing among the people. And after all the people have been baptized, now it's Jesus' turn. He steps forward. That means that there are other people there to witness this tremendous event. But Jesus did not ask for a special favor to say, sinners, I'm above you. Sinners, I'm not one of you. Actually, he did just the opposite. He came to be numbered among the transgressors. You know where the transgressors were found in the days of John the Baptist? At the River Jordan. They were the ones repenting. Those were the transgressors, the sinners, the publicans. Those were the lowlifes of society that had come to get their life right. And Jesus says, that's my crowd. Jesus did not come to simply stand on a mountain and preach and teach and say, listen, I'm the Lord from heaven. This is how you ought to live. Jesus came to do much more than that. He humbled himself all the way down to the position to say, listen, you sinners down here by the river, brokenhearted, repenting, getting right with God. Jesus did not need to repent. Jesus had no sins. But listen, he wanted people to know that he was intimately concerned with what was going on in their life. That I'm not so high and holy that I cannot come down and become familiar with what you're going through. So the Bible says he was tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. He knows what it feels like to be human. He knows what it feels like to struggle, to be tempted, to feel faint, to feel weak. And yet he never sinned. He's able to call us brethren, the Bible says. Now think of that. The Lord of glory, the creator of the universe, can put his arm around you and say, I know what you're going through. I've stood in line as well. I've put myself down there amongst the transgressors. Jesus is showing us here that he's concerned about our situation with God. He's right down there with the people. But it goes a step further. You see, after he gets baptized, now he's numbered amongst the transgressors. Be careful. In the book of Isaiah, there's a prophecy that says the Messiah will be numbered with the transgressors. But that, that's not the whole verse. Let me just read you the verse. It says in Isaiah 53, 12, Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death. He was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many, and made intercession 
for the transgressors. Now think of this. When he goes down there into the water, he's taking the place of where any sinner would stand. There he begins to be numbered among the transgressors, but that's not the complete fulfillment of it. That doesn't happen until he gets to the cross. And there he hangs, condemned like any other sinner, between two thieves, people spitting at him, mocking him, yelling at him, blaspheming, just like any other sinner, rejected of mankind. The world was made by him, and the world knew him not. The Bible says it was there that he poured out his soul unto death. When Jesus was born, he was numbered amongst the human beings. When he got to the baptism, he began to be numbered amongst the transgressors. When he gets to the cross, Isaiah's prophecy is completely fulfilled. Isaiah said he'll be numbered amongst the transgressors, and listen to this, he'll make intercession for the transgressors. What was the first thing Jesus prayed when he was on the cross? Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. The first thing he did when he was up there with a thief on this side and a thief on that side, and remember, they were mocking him. If you're the Christ, if you're the king come down from the cross, he's there numbered with those transgressors, and yet he's praying for them. He's praying for the soldiers that nailed him to the cross. He's praying for you and me. It was our sins that put him there. He's making intercession saying, God, don't hold it against them. They don't know any better. Jesus did not come and give us a long list of rules and say, keep these rules and fix yourself. Jesus came down and got his hands dirty and said, there is no way you could ever fix yourself. I'll come down there and fix you. I'll come down there and give myself as a sacrifice so that you can come back to God because there's no other way back to the Father but through me. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, for he, the Father, hath made him, Christ, to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Folks, it's a simple transaction. He's numbered among the transgressors. His baptism started to show that. The cross fulfilled it. He is taking our place so that we can take his. Do you understand how simple this is? He says, let's make a trade. You give me your sins, I'll give you my righteousness. That's how salvation works. You don't go to God with a long list of things that you've done and say, look at all the good things I've done, God. This ought to grant me eternal life. That's not how it works. A transaction must be made. Your sins must be paid for. You owe God a debt. You have transgressed. You've crossed the line. God said, don't go over that. You went too far. Now he says, you owe me. The wages of sin is death. Jesus says, I'll pay that debt. And if you will accept by faith what I've done for you, I'll give you my righteousness. So Jesus comes down and takes the place of a sinner getting baptized. Takes the place of a sinner dying on a cross. And when you accept that by faith, you know what he does? He says, now you're my child. Now, just like I'm seated at the right hand of God, you as well, you are seated in heavenly places at the right hand of the Father. Just like Jesus has eternal life, he says, now you have eternal life. Just like Jesus is called the Son of God, you are called a Son of God. He took your place so you can have his. He says, if you overcome and the Bible says we overcome by faith. If you overcome, you can sit down in the throne just like he sat down at the right hand of the Father because you're joined to him. Let me illustrate it like this. I saw this video years ago, and I think it's an outstanding illustration of how salvation works. Maybe you've seen this. A man fell in a hole. Any of you seen that video? 
It's called a man fell in a hole. <laughs> a man fell in a hole. And this hole was so deep, the man could not get out. It was dark. He tried to climb and scratch and claw his way out of the hole, but no matter how hard he tried, he was stuck in the hole. He was beginning to become very desperate, and one day a, a man walked by and looked down and said, Sir, you're stuck in the hole. Are you okay? And he said, No, please help me. I can't get out. He said, All you need to do, listen, just there are ten rules you need to keep. Follow these ten commandments to the best of your ability, and I'm sure you'll get out of the hole. The visitor walked off, and that man down there in the hole said, Well, I'll do the very best I can to keep those ten rules, but I, no matter how hard I try, none of these rules are going to help me get out of the hole. Trying to keep the rules didn't help. Another man eventually walks by, and he says, Sir, I see you're stuck in a hole. He says, Yes, I am. Can you please help me? He said, Well, I, I, I'll give you some advice. I got a great church that I go to. How about you come visit my church? If you could just visit the church, then I'm sure you get out of the hole. And the man thought, well, that seems kind of backwards, doesn't it? I'm stuck in the hole. If I could get out of the hole and come to the church, I'd be out of the hole. He said, well, thanks for trying, and that man walked off. More time went by. Another man walks by and says, sir, you're stuck in a hole. Yes, I know that. <laughs> he said, how are you going to get out of the hole? He said, I have no idea. Could you please help me? He said, well, I'll give you some advice. If you would just calm your mind, sit cross-legged, hold your fingers just so, and say, oh, quiet, oh. And if you could just get in touch with your inner self, you might reach nirvana. And then you might be able to get out of the hole. So the man sat cross-legged, fingers touching, and home, home. And no matter how much he homed, he couldn't go home. He was still stuck in the hole. Weeks went by. This man is now getting extremely desperate. Another man walks by and says, Sir, you're stuck in a hole. He said, Yes, I know. Can you please help me get out? He said, well, I'll tell you what I would do. Pray five times a day, but make sure when you pray that you turn towards the proper direction and face, face the mosque and make sure that you got that right five times in the day and surely you'll get out of the hole. The man five times a day faithfully prayed, and never did he get out of the hole. More time went by and finally somebody came by stopped, looked, and said, Sir, I see you're in a hole. Has no one been able to help you? He said, No, sir, I've, I've had many people pass by, but nothing I try seems to get me out of the hole. He said, You know what? Give me just a minute. I'll be right back. And I said, Okay. This guy didn't give me any advice. He didn't tell me what to do. He just, Okay, well, I hope he comes back. And a few minutes later, you see this guy went and found a rope, and he tied it to a tree. And he brought this rope back and lowered the rope. <laughs> I'm making a great point. <laughs> That's how you know it's going to be a good point, is right when that <laughs> And he lowers the rope into the hole. And that man gets on the rope and lowers himself down into the hole. And this man is so weak, he cannot grab the rope and pull himself out of the hole. That man picked that guy up, put him on his shoulder and took that rope and pulled himself up out of the hole and rescued that man. And when that man finally gets out of the hole, he looks up and that rope is not tied to just any old tree, but an old rugged cross. And the illustration is, 
Jesus is the only one that would actually get down there in the hole with you and be numbered with the transgressors. He's not up in heaven just saying, here's a list of rules, do this, and maybe you'll make it out of the hole. You're so deep in the hole, you'll never get yourself out of it. The only way we could make our, make our way back to God is for Jesus to humble himself even unto death and be numbered amongst the transgressors. And that meant getting his hands dirty. Don't you know that people after the baptism of John said, yeah, I saw Jesus down there with all those sinners getting baptized. You know, and you know what that means. Jesus was not afraid of what the public might say about him. He was concerned about you. He was numbered amongst the transgressors. He lowered the rope to come and get you. All you have to do is now grab on. Receive Jesus Christ as your Savior. He'll get you out of the hole. Second thing I want to say, if you can take your Bible to John chapter 1, please. John chapter 1. Let's begin reading in verse 29. John 1 and verse 29. His baptism shows us, it defined him as a friend of sinners, one who is numbered amongst the transgressors. But number two, the, the baptism of Jesus defines him as the Messiah, the Son of God. Now I want to explain that from John 1. Let's begin reading in verse 29. The next day John, that's the Baptist, seeth Jesus coming unto him and saith, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me cometh a man which is preferred before me, for he was before me. Now what's interesting there is John was actually born before Jesus. So for John to say he was before me, that can't be a physical statement. He knows that this Messiah is an eternal figure, a divine figure. Verse 31, And I knew him not. Now John was the cousin of Jesus. So he knew who Jesus the man was. He did not know that Jesus, his little cousin, younger cousin, was the Son of God. He didn't know that. So John the Baptist is now telling the story, how did he come to know the true identity of Jesus? Verse 31, I knew him not, but that he should be made manifest to Israel, therefore am I come baptizing with water. So John realizes God sent me out to baptize with water, yes, to help the people who are repenting, but there's another purpose to it. God the Father had told John, one day my son's going to come and get baptized, and you're going to know it because the Spirit will come down, and you'll see it. And once you see it, John, once you know the true identity of the Lord Jesus Christ, it's your job to go tell everybody, that's the Lamb. So he says in verse 32, and John bear record saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove in an abode upon him. And I knew him not, but he that sent me to baptize with water, that's the Father, the same said unto me, upon whom thou shalt see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, the same as he which baptizeth with the Holy Ghost. And I saw and bear record that this is the Son of God. So John's explaining how he knows for sure this Jesus character is the one whose shoes he's not worthy to unloose. John, how do you know that for sure? Is that just your opinion? No, no. God told me this is what I should expect. Now, remember Israel for now over a thousand years, they have been waiting for their Messiah. So think of it like this. We know as a, as a let's say, humanity, we know that we're broken, right? 
Can't you look around at Russia and Ukraine and see that the problems of this world are never going to be fixed by people? All we do is keep going to war and keep going to war, keep going. We, we keep falling back in the hole. <laughs> That's humanity. God fixes us up real nice and we just run it into the ground and then fixes it up nice and we run it into the ground. That's, that's what we do. Humanity needs a Savior. If there's anything we've proven in the last 6,000 years of, of human history is we need a Savior. We cannot fix ourselves. Amen? We need a Savior. Now what you get in the Old Testament are certain prophecies which says God is going to send a specific person to be the Savior. In the book of Deuteronomy, he said, I'll send a prophet like unto Moses. When you get into the book of Daniel, he says, I'll send the Messiah, and he shall be cut off, not for himself, but for others. So now we see, yes, it's obvious we need a Savior, but then God narrows it down and says, I will send the Savior, but then we need to take it one step further. Because simply knowing that Jesus is the Savior doesn't save you. He needs to become your Savior. I want to show you this. Can I ask you to, you can hold John if you'd like, and just come to Exodus chapter 12. I want to show you this in the Bible. Exodus chapter 12, and let's, let's look at verse number 3. Exodus 12 and verse 3. You folks remember in Exodus 12, we're reading about the Passover lamb. Now, the reason I'm bringing you to Exodus 12 is because it's the first time that the lamb takes center stage as it pertains to redemption. First time. And now this lamb has become this central figure of the story. You remember what John the Baptist said about Jesus? Behold the Lamb. All right, God, teach me something about the Lamb. Exodus 12, verse 3, Speak ye unto all the congregation of Israel, saying, In the tenth day of this month, they shall take to them every man, what? What, what, what does it say before Lamb? A Lamb. You see that? You might circle the letter A. Get a lamb. We're reading about the Passover here. Remember the Passover? Put the blood on the doorframe. Remember that? You remember where the blood went on the doorframe? You put it on the lintel and on the two side posts. Remember that? You put some blood here and two blood here because at Calvary you had one cross here and two crosses there. Oh, the Passover is rich. He says when, when it's time for the Passover, every man needs to get a lamb. You see that? Yep. Keep reading. According to the house of their fathers... A lamb for in house. You see that? A lamb. We all need a lamb. Verse 4. And if the household be too little for, what's the next word? The lamb. Uh, now we're moving forward. You need a lamb, yes. But not just any old lamb. You need the lamb. If the household be too, too little for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next unto his house take it according to the number of the souls. Every man according to his eating shall make your count for the lamb. Do you see that? You need a lamb. It's a specific lamb. Verse 5, what's the first word? Your lamb shall be without blemish. 
Jesus never sinned. He is our Passover. Three stages. The world needs a Savior. It needs a Lamb. Yes, but there is only one. There's only one that can fit the bill of redeeming you. There's only one that can shed its blood that can wash away your sins. And the only one that can do it is a sinless lamb without blemish. There's only one person in human history to live without sin. That's Jesus. So not just any old lamb, the lamb. But that's not enough. The lamb needs to become your lamb. You see, John, he came baptizing so that God could reveal to him who the Messiah is. And once John figured that out, he then began pointing people to the Messiah. There's the Lamb that takes away the sin of the world. You know what John was trying to do? Get people to realize not just that he is the Lamb, but now you need to follow him so that he's your Lamb. I'm asking you today, is he your Lamb? Have you ever made the distinction between, yes, I believe that Jesus is there, and yes, I know he died on the cross, he rose again. I believe that he is the Savior, but have you personally gone to him and said, Lord, I cannot fix myself. I'm too broken. I'm stuck in the hole, and no matter how hard I try, I cannot climb out. But I know you died for me. You lowered the rope. You took my place. Now, please, I am going to trust your blood that was shed for my sins. That's the only way I can be forgiven. Have you ever accepted him as your lamb? You say, Pastor, I have. I know that the world needs a Savior, and I know Jesus is the Savior, and I have accepted him as my Savior. You know what you ought to do now? Just like John did. Every chance you get. Friend, family, cake here, there's the lamb. Behold the Lamb which takes away the sin of the world. Now start pointing of Jesus revealed it, or let's say the Father revealed it to you so that you could reveal it to others. Jesus' baptism was significant for many reasons, but then lastly, I want to ask you to bring, it, uh, bring your Bible to Matthew chapter 3. There's one more defining element to his baptism. Matthew 3, let's get verse 13. Matthew 3, verse 13. The Bible says, Then cometh Jesus from Galilee to Jordan unto John to be baptized of him. So you see what I've given you here this morning. We read the baptism of Christ from Luke's gospel, and then... We read about the account of it in John's gospel. Now I'm giving it to you from Matthew's gospel. Jesus came from Galilee all the way down to Jordan. That's a long journey. That's, that takes you the whole day, even longer maybe. This is probably why he got baptized at the end of the day after all the people. He was last to get in line. Verse 14, but John forbade him, saying, I have need to be baptized of thee, and comest thou to me? John did not yet know that this was the Son of God. All he knew is Jesus, my cousin, he's a better man than I am. Now think of that. Jesus said John was the greatest of all men born of women. And John even says, listen, if anybody needs to be baptized around here, it's me. Not you, Jesus. I can't think of anything you've ever done wrong. And I say, amen, John, me either. <laughs> Verse 15, Jesus answering said unto him, suffer it to be so now. 
for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he suffered him. He allowed it. John said, okay, I, I'm not comfortable with this. I feel like I should be the one in the water getting baptized, but okay, if you say that it's necessary, we'll do it. Why was it necessary? So that he could be numbered amongst the transgressors, yes. To prove to John that Jesus is the Son of God, yes. That needed to be fulfilled, but one other thing needed to happen. Verse 16, we read about the Spirit of God descending like a dove. Jesus knew, it's time for me to start my ministry. I'm going to go out and preach to people that hate me. For the next three and a half years, I will have Satan and every unclean spirit fighting against me. The Pharisees, Sadducees fighting against me. My own disciples will turn against me. I cannot do this alone. So one member of the Trinity knows that this is the moment. By going down there in the water, the Father has chosen this as the means of bringing down the Holy Spirit. Not, not that the Son did not have the Spirit before. Jesus had the Spirit without measure. But now he says, I need the help and power of the Holy Ghost on my life from this day forward. One member of the Trinity calling down the other member of the Trinity. I need a fellow laborer. I need the help of the Spirit of God for what I'm about to do. What I want to say next, I admit I'm going to get a little deep with you. Jesus knew, and we read this in the book of Acts, he was going to be endued with power from on high. Acts chapter 10, when Peter tells the story, he's talking about the baptism of John. He says, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power, who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. Folks, I want you to understand this as, as, as perfectly as you can. You and I, when we get saved, the Holy Spirit comes within he lives inside of us, and you are to be filled with the Holy Spirit. That is the Spirit of God in you, but that is different than the Spirit of God being on you. Those are two different things. They often work together. When you are filled with the Spirit, what that means is you are completely yielded to Him, and now He is able to use you in whatever way He sees fit. That's being filled. When the Holy Spirit is on you, he comes down and anoints you in order to achieve a specific purpose. Now that goal might be something that happens just now today. Maybe the Holy Ghost comes down on you to accomplish something for the next 10 years. But anytime God gives a command to somebody and says, you go do this, and it's a big thing that you cannot do in your own strength, you need this anointing. You need this power. You need heaven's help. Even Jesus recognized it. I don't want to scare you or confuse you with this because people have strange ideas. Well, Brother Mike, if you're talking about the Holy Ghost coming down and being upon me, does that mean, you know, something strange and weird is going to happen? And No. Matter of fact, when it happened to Jesus, you know what the next thing was? You can see it in Matthew 4. Verse 1, then was Jesus led up of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. Jesus had been tasked by God to go and do something that no other man had ever done. Preach for three and a half years and then go to the cross and carry our sins. 
He could not do that without the Holy Spirit on him. The reason I think this is such a difficult subject is because it's so often overlooked and so rarely sought after. The thing, I hesitate to say thing, let me not say thing. The element, the substance that anoints us is the Holy Spirit. That anointing lives within us, the Bible tells us this, as saved people. But we also need Him on us. Let me give you a verse about it. Jesus said, after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, right? you'll receive power to be witnesses unto me. Jesus was sending the apostles out to preach the gospel to the uttermost part of the earth, was He not? And he said, now, guys, don't go anywhere. Wait here in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes down and empowers you to do it. He said, you will be endued with power from on high, then go do it. Jesus knew. John, he said, John, don't stop me from getting baptized because this is what the Father has commanded me to do in order for the Holy Spirit to come down and be on me, not just in me, on me. This is not a promise that if you get baptized, the Holy Spirit will be on you. God might tell you to do something different to receive this extra bit of power. But whatever it is that God wants you to accomplish tomorrow, you need His help. Jesus acknowledged it and said, John, I need this baptism. Allow it to... We need to fulfill all righteousness. Let me get down there in the water. If I can just explain a bit of my journey on this. Years ago, I started reading books after I got saved about how God used certain men. And I read about there's all sorts of men. One of them stands out, Brother D.L. Moody. He had over one million people get saved under his preaching. Now, as a young man, you know, I read that and went, man, wow. God, if you'd use me and just... I don't, I'll never be that, but if you could just use me in some small way, please God. How did D.L. Moody have the hand of God on him in such a powerful way? How did it happen? And I read in there about two women that pulled him aside. I said, Brother Moody, we can see that God is using you, but you need that extra little touch from God. And they prayed over him and prayed over him and prayed over him. And he walked out of that room and he said, never again was he the same man. Something, something happened in that room and he said God came down and from that day forward he didn't change the way he preached. He didn't change the way he sang. He didn't fall on the floor. He didn't, none of that. He just said from that point forward something was different. See, I read that as a young Christian. I went, okay. I want to have people pray for me. I want to see God do something like that in my life. I want God to use me. D.L. Moody was not in it to be seen of men. He just wanted to be used of God. Do you have that desire this morning? God, please give me something to do. I want to be used of you. You don't have to be world-renowned. It doesn't have to be something big on the front page of a newspaper. Do you want God to use you in your family? Do you want God to have His hand on you at work so that you can make a difference at work? In every way, you need this anointing. So I start searching, God, where can I find it? A preacher comes to preach at the church where I was at, and he starts talking about this. And he says he's also searching. He says in the process of searching, he and a buddy got in a car and drove all over America. Every preacher that they heard about, 
that knew something about God, had that special relationship with him, they'd drive to that church. They'd knock on the door at 10 o'clock at night, wake the guy up. <laughs> they'd say, Brother so-and-so, I'm, I'm Brother Lentz, this is Brother Ryman. He said, we, we've been traveling 800 miles all night. We drove all, all day and all night. We want you to pray over us. And that preacher get angry at him. <laughs> you woke me up just for this? You couldn't wait till the morning? They said, he, they'd say, sir, we're desperate. We don't want to go another mile without the hand of God on us. It's not that they didn't have the Holy Spirit. They knew that they wanted to do something bigger for God than they could accomplish in their own power. They needed God on them. They would go from one state to the next. And I don't, I don't know how many preachers they had pray over them. All I know is God did use those men. I heard that as a young Christian. And then it was my turn. After I graduated Bible school, I get to travel the country. I was doing it to raise support to come to Africa. And I thought at that time, this is now 22 years ago, at that time, God put it on my heart. He said, you ought to ask these preachers to pray for you. I was too scared. I was too ashamed. I didn't know how to ask. But man, I don't even know how to explain this to them, what I actually want here. I don't know. I don't... I want, I want God to do something big. I want Him to use me. But I don't know how to ask, so I didn't. I stayed quiet. Until about three months ago. I got back to the States and I was praying about everything that He'd done here and said, Lord, you're obviously doing something in South Africa and I don't want you to stop. And I told the Lord, I... I don't care how big the church gets or how popular it is. I just want you to use us. God, I want to be a good pastor. I want to be a good missionary. And I want your hand on me. And Lord, you don't have to come down and have a, a dove over my head. And I don't, I, my face doesn't have to glow like Moses. <laughs> you know, he did that for Israel. The pillar of a cloud by day and fire by night. That was God on them. God promised, I'll never leave you nor forsake you, but that was God manifesting His presence in a special way. He was on them. And He was on them for 40 years until they got into the promised land. Then that cloud of, and that fire went away because the, uh, the task was finished. So God comes down, puts His hand on you. He anoints you. He gives you power to accomplish a special task. The face will glow as you deliver the message, message, Moses, but then after the message is delivered, the light bulb goes off. <laughs> Escom, no more glow. <laughs> you understand? I said, God, I, I want you to have your hand on what we're doing there. I don't want to manufacture that. I do not have the energy to come Sunday after Sunday and crank your engine by me sweating and getting excited and getting all revved up here. Because if I get frothing at the mouth and go, oh, bless God, come on, let's serve God. If I have to rev your engine like that every week, that's coming from me. I said, God, I, I'll do whatever you want me to do, say whatever you want me to say, but it's all in vain unless the Holy One comes down. So tell me, God, what, what do you want me to do? And he said, you remember what I told you to do all those years ago? Asking preachers to pray. I said, yeah. He said, go ahead and ask. I said, God, I'm a, 
slightly older man now. This is a little embarrassing. He said, I don't care. That's what I want you to do. Boy, I stood in the living room of a man I've respected for years, 75-year-old gentleman now, and I asked him, I said, Brother, I got a request. I'm a little shy to ask, but I think I need to ask. Would you pray over me? And Brother Haviman is a very excitable guy. He said, Brother Mike, you want me to pray over you? I pray for you all the time. I was like, I know, I know, but I'm asking something special. I'm asking for that special anointing, that, that blessing from God. He said, oh, you want that kind of prayer? Come on down. And right there in his living room, his wife has now passed away. He lives alone. He was more excited than I was. I broke down in tears. He put his hand on me, and he started to pray. I'd love to say that I felt the Holy Ghost come down, you know, and the dove was there. It wasn't. I listened intently to every word he said. I thanked him. He gave me a big hug. He said, Brother Mike, I love you. He said, I'm sure God's going to use you. Off I went. I went to another church. I didn't do it with every pastor, just the pastors that I think would understand. The ones that God said, ask him. I did. And man, I had to really work up the courage. I waited around like a little school child. I felt so childish. I was waiting out by the door of a church one night. This preacher, I've known him for years, known about him. I waited out there, and other little kids kept coming up to me. Brother Mike, Brother Mike, talk to us about Africa. Tell us about Africa. And I said, go away, kids, go away. I'm waiting, I'm waiting for the preacher. <laughs> I kid you, I had one kid actually grab onto my leg, and I couldn't shake him. Like, physically, I said, get off, get off. I said, I'll be right there. Brother so-and-so's coming. And here he comes. He's heading for the door. He's going to go home. And I stopped him. I said, sir, I'm so sorry. I know you're busy. I know you're on your way out. Would you mind just praying over me? He said, you want to do it here or somewhere else? I said, I don't care. And right there, he put his hand on my shoulder and started praying. Lobby full of people. They're all walking by. And this brother starts praying. And as he's praying, he's getting louder and louder and louder. Oh, God, watch over this man. Oh, God, when the devil starts to it. Oh, God. I said, I'm glad I mean it. (laughs) I got to meet a man. He's 84. Been in the ministry for a long time. He got saved at the age of 40. He had committed every sin you could imagine except murder. That's what he said. He told me the stories, and I believe it. God saved him, changed him. He was a pastor for years. He visited Malawi the year before I went there. I asked him, I said, Brother Soche, would you pray over me church had already the church service had already started I was scheduled to preach that night God said ask him now I said brother Soche, would you mind praying over me he said come on 84 that guy is spry eh? he went come on he starts running to the room <laughs> we got down and he prayed we got up he gave me a big hug he said brother Mike this was a great honor I asked a few other people you know the point I'm getting at with this Not one time did I ever have the glory of God come down. I didn't have the cloud fill the room. The dove never descended. It didn't happen. I don't stand here before you today feeling as if, you know, I don't don't have that. And I don't need that. I don't need to feel it. You know what I think the key was? I was hungry for it. 
Seek the Lord. Seek His strength. Seek His face continually. The reason the Holy Spirit came down and anointed Jesus for this special work is because He was willing to do it. And Christian, if you would just be willing to obey, to take that step, and God says, I want you to do that, and you say, anything for you. That's where you'll see the hand of God come down. You may not even feel it, but God will take your simple obedience and bless it and use it in a way that you could not manufacture. I need help in my marriage. I need help in my work. I need help in my trying. Then say, God, whatever I have to do to have your special blessing on me, I want you to use my life. Say, Brother Mike, does this mean I need to become a pastor or missionary? Not at all. Not at all. You know where I've seen it most? I'm almost done. I just want to tell you this one thing and we'll, we'll go home. As I've gone from church to church, and I'm going to be very specific now if you don't mind, where I've seen it most is not in pastors. I've known too many. <laughs> I've, I've known too many that just go through the motions. I've known some that have the hand of God on them. You know where I've seen it most? I go in the church, and it's after the kids have left home. Mom and dad have some extra time now. And mom and dad begin to seek the face of God in a way that they never did before. And it's not that they weren't interested before. It's just now with this extra time, they dedicate it to the Lord. And you walk into that church and sit down next to one of those Tanis or Uams and you start having a conversation with them and something's just different. You know, some of you, you, you might look at what's going on, your current stage of life, you think, what difference can I make? I'm not a preacher. I'm not, I'm not qualified to do anything in the ministry. How can I touch the lives of the people in this church? You just seeking the face of God, saying, God, I want your hand on me. I know your Spirit's in me, and I'm yielded to you. Fill me, but I want your hand on me. I want to make a difference in some young person's life. When I was in my 20s visiting those churches, I went over 200 of them, and I racked up a list of Otanis and Oums that pray for me. And they had that, it wasn't a physical thing, but they had that glow about them. That is not something that's just for Uams and Tanis. Anybody can have that. But Uam, Tani, you want to make a difference in some younger lives? When they come and sit next to you in the church, when they pass by in the courtyard, when you greet them, they ought to be able to know this person's walking with God. There's something special about this person. Maybe you need that pivotal moment. And for you, it may not be baptism. For Jesus, it was. That's what God used to pivot him out of the secular into the full-time ministry. For you, it might be different. Say, God, I want that. I need that. I want your hand on me. Let's all stand, if you would, please. Let's have our heads bowed, eyes closed. Heads bowed and eyes closed.
Jesus was going to enter three and a half years of a very difficult ministry. And he knew that he needed God's help. I don't know what's next for you, what what God wants out of your life. But I do know that you'll need God's help for it. I knew coming into this, there's no way I could properly and fully explain it. All I know is we need it. Maybe this morning, you are the man in the hole. You've tried and tried to pull yourself up out of it, but you're still stuck in the pit of your sin. Maybe today, you open your heart to the Lord Jesus and say, Lord, I want to trade places with you. You took my place in the pit so that I could take your place at the right hand of the Father. The altar's open. Some have come. If you'd like to come and say, God, I I don't even know what I'm asking for. I don't, I don't understand that anointing and that hand of God. I don't understand all that. All I know is I want it. Why don't you come ask Him for it? I don't often direct comments towards a particular age group, but today I will. Ulam. Tani, many of you love the Lord. I know you personally. And you have my respect. You've been faithful to the Lord, and I appreciate that. Can I ask you today, do you have that anointing on you? Have you ever asked the Lord to use you in a greater way? I'm going to pray and we're going to close. Before I pray, I just want to ask and, and understand, this is private. No one's looking around. Everybody has their eyes closed. So it's just between you, me, and the, and the Lord. If you're here this morning and you've never been born again, that is, you've never received the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, I'd like to pray for you. Understand, I'm not going to save you. I, I can't do that. I would just like to pray for you, that God helps you to make the necessary decision. Would you be willing to just slip your hand up? You can put it right back down. I would just like to know who I'm praying for. Thank you. I appreciate that. Anybody else say, preacher, just pray for me. I'm not sure that I'm saved, but I'd like to be. Anybody else? All right, I appreciate your honesty. Thank you. I see that hand. Thank you. Father, 
Lord, as I turn my attention directly to you now, I'm going to bring these, these people that have raised their hands, bring them before you, and ask that you'd let the Holy Spirit continue to draw them in. Show them what they need. Show them, Lord, how easy it is today to have Christ living in their heart. Father, to this point, I don't know how to properly ask or explain that anointing. You told me to seek your face continually. I'm trying to do that. I pray to help all of us in this room today. Lord, we know you're in us. We want your hand on us. Help us, God. Each task we face, face each challenge, Lord, we want to see your hand on it. I pray you please dismiss us with your blessing. Help us, Lord, to hold on to what we've heard this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, folks, thank you so much for being here. Lord willing, tonight, 6 p.m., Revelation class at the new church. Hopefully.